This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here in New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm here today to discuss Smugglers, Pirates, and Patriots, Free Trade in the Age of Revolution, published earlier this year by University of Pennsylvania Press. The author is Tyson Reeder. He's an editor at the uh, James Madison Papers and an affiliated assistant professor at the University of Virginia. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Reeder. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ryan. So before we dive into the, into the questions, um, let's talk a little bit about your um, cover here. There's several images. How did you assemble this this uh, striking cover? Uh, yeah, this uh, um, actually I, uh, with a lot more work than I uh, care to admit. What <laughs> um, I wanted to uh, give readers a sense of before they even picked up the book, I wanted to give them a sense of uh, really what sort of an Atlantic history uh, this book was, how it integrated uh, widespread regions of the of the Atlantic, from Europe to uh, North America to Brazil to Africa, um, and I wanted to uh, you know sort of give them a, an idea of some of the tumultuous episodes that we talk about in the book and that are discussed in the book. Um, so, in terms of the American Revolution and its effect on free trade ideology in North America, in terms of revolutions and wars in Brazil, uh, piracy. Um, North American pirates who went and, and preyed on Portuguese ships in Brazil, uh, smugglers, all of these tumultuous things. I wanted to give readers a sort of sense of what they could expect when they picked up the book. And as I mentioned, particularly uh, the Atlantic d- dimensions of the book. Uh, this goes beyond the British Atlantic. It goes beyond early American history, but that we, you know, that the book really does integrate regions from, from all around the Atlantic into a, a coherent narrative. So during the 17th and 18th centuries, how did British commercial networks come to dominate Portuguese commerce in Brazil and the Luso-Atlantic before and after the 1766 prohibition on English grain exports? In addition, after the 1755 Lisbon earthquake, how did the Marquis of Pombal inadvertently strengthen Portugal's ties to British America? In your response, if you can, please address at least uh, three of the following, the 1703 uh, Methan Treaty, the relaxation of British mercantilism, British Atlantic demand for gold, the slave trade, the British American slave trade, and that uh, mid-Atlantic Madero wine trade. Yeah, so these are all sorts of uh, widespread, far-flung areas of the Atlantic that really ended up with intricate ties. Um, so I think the, the best place to start would be treaties between Portugal and uh, England. And so this would bring us to uh, the 1640s, uh, particularly in 1642. Uh, the, the Portugal had been uh, unified politically with Spain for a long time. Portugal was now trying to assert its independence from Spain. And so it was in a very precarious situation. And so it began to 
uh, make treaties with England, where England would essentially give them um, military protection in return for for advantageous economic benefits for England. And so uh, in 1642, they signed one of these treaties. In 1654, they signed another treaty that prohibited the Portuguese from raising um, duties on English manufacturers above 23% uh, of the value of the goods. Um, and then it's really capped off with the Methuen Treaty of 1703. And that allows English woolens to enter Lisbon and Porto free of duty, which is a great boon, for, of course, for, for English manufacturers. And it also reduces wines on Portuguese, or it reduces duties on Portuguese wines that entered England. Uh, but it's it's an obviously more advantageous treaty to the English than it is to Portugal, and really stems from Portugal's uh, weak bargaining position with England. And so early on, they began to really strengthen their strengthen their economic ties and uh, strengthen an alliance between Portugal and England, but more than an alliance, it was really a sort of economic subservience of Portugal to England. Um, and that spills over into Portugal's relationship with uh, British America. Um, British Americans enjoyed some of these advantages, um, and especially they enjoyed advantage, the advantage of the Medeto wine trade. The Medeto wine trade became very important to British America because the Due to these uh, these treaties and the, the close economic relationship between Britain or between England and uh, Portugal, England actually exempted Madeira wine. Madeira is a, a small island in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, but it produced a lot of wine. And because Madeira wine was exempted from the navigation acts uh, by the British, or excuse me, by the English, um, then. Americans, English colonists in the Americas were, began to import a lot of a lot of Madeira wine. Um, Madeira wine didn't have to pass through London like other other wines did, or other imports into British America, um, and so it really tightens the relationship, the economic relationship between British America and uh, well between British America, Great Britain, and Portugal. Um, and a lot of other things go into this, though. Uh, such as uh, the gold trade and the slave trade between Brazil and Africa. And so in 1695, gold is discovered um, in the regions, in the outer regions of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And this starts to re revive Portugal's empire to an extent uh, that, that had really been waning since the 1400s. And so, well, the 14 and 1500s, I should say. And so with this, with the beginning of this revival, Portugal wants to begin to import gold from Brazil, and so they have an incentive to increase slavery in Brazil so that they can produce more gold, so the slaves are working in, in Brazilian mines, um, sending gold back to Portugal. And that becomes important because Portugal is importing so many manufacturers from England, they need some way to pay for that. And the way that they pay for that is by smuggling gold from Portugal to England. That gold wasn't uh, supposed legally supposed to leave Portugal, but it did, and then left it in droves. Um, and so, one thing that they paid for with that gold was provisions that they received from British America. So, British Americans, especially in Pennsylvania, New York, and Maryland, are sending a lot of wheat, flour, breadstuff, and other provisions to Portugal. Um, and Portugal is really dependent for a long time on. 
foreign sources of provisions. And so they pay for those by sending gold to Britain to pay uh, British American debtor, uh, excuse me, British American creditors in, uh, in England. Um, and so all of this is to say that, that, that what seems like a pretty straightforward relationship where um, British Americans were importing wine from Portugal and exporting provisions to Portugal actually came surrounded with an entire Atlantic backdrop of slavery, of gold trade, of smuggling um, in, in Africa, in Europe, and in North America and South America. So early on, we begin to see the real Atlantic dimensions of this of this story. So let's go into a little more context. Can you explain how proponents of the Enlightenment promulgated a what you describe as free trade ideology in natural law and natural rights? Yeah. So um, early early theorists, uh, well, theorists for a long time had had promulgated some form of of economic freedom, and we can go clear back to 1609 to the Dutch jurist uh, Huy de Groot. Uh, his name is frequently Latinized as Hugo Grotius. Um, in 1609, he publishes Mari Liberum, which means the free sea. And he uh, begin, He makes one of the, the earliest strong um, ideological defenses of free trade. And in, in, in um, Grotius's idea, he, can't, he, he, he assumes that, that the creator had, had created the oceans to connect people not to divide them. And so the, the so he, he creates a sort of natural law ideology about free trade, or I guess we could call it a proto-natural law, that, that free trade should be natural um, between between empires. Um, and he's followed up by uh, a number of philosophers, philosophers um, you know, from David Hume to, to Adam Smith to Ange Godard um, to Jacques-Claude Marie-Vincent de Bonnet, um, all of whom are advocating, begin to advocate some sort of free trade. And they suggest that, that empires should not depend on um, secrecy, um, on having closed empires, but that they should be marked by cooperation and by mutual interest. Um, and so as they continue to develop a sort of natural law ideology around free trade, that begins to spill over into um, concepts of smuggling and, and uh, theories about smuggling. And so, for instance, if free trade is a natural law, um, then restrictions on that natural law um, justify violations of that natural law or, or violations of, of political laws. And so, you know, for instance, in, in France or in, in Great Britain, um, we see a lot of people begin to begin to smuggle and justify their smuggling. And in British America, they begin to justify their, their smuggling essentially by saying, this is a natural law. The government is disobeying this natural law. And so we are simply obeying the natural law by violating our political laws. What role did British debates over political economy in the American Revolution, in addition to uh, the Portuguese, Portuguese slave trade, reduced gold production, and Brazilian contraband investment, 
What role did they all play in the weakening of Lisbon control of the Luso Atlantic? Yeah, so um, I think uh, if you start with with the American Revolution, well, the American Revolution was um, really based on on debates. Well, it was based in large part on debates over British political economy, and so as uh, American colonists began to rebel and then eventually revolutionize against the imperial uh, economic nexus of the British Atlantic, um, it has a strong effect because of their close ties. It has a strong effect on, on Portugal. And um, so the British begin to, early on, beginning really with, with the, uh, the Sugar Act in 1764, the British begin to um, make more stringent uh, laws against trade with Portugal um, even against trade with Madeira, which had been left alone, which had been exempted from the Navigation Acts for a long time. Um, and they begin to clamp down on illicit trade with Portugal, and illicit trade, uh, direct trade between British America and Portugal. And so uh, early on, the Portuguese trade, the British American Portuguese trade starts to suffer um, due to the uh, constitutional crisis between British America and and Great Britain. And as the American Revolution unfolds, uh, in large part, Americans are are rebelling for their right to save their their economic networks that they have worked out over the last century. And, and yet at the same time, to assert that right, they part, start to put their own um, restrictions on those very networks that they're trying to save. So, for instance, in 1774, they signed the Articles of Association um, that is supposed to boycott Madeira wine because Madeira wine was beginning to be seen as a, a way of, or, or a means of the British to subjugate their colonists because the British are now taxing and placing duties, stringent duties on Madeira wine. And so they boycott those items. And so they're actually... Uh, severing their ties with Portugal, paradoxically, even as they're rebelling to save those very networks, those very economic networks that they have built up over the, over the last century. Um, and that also uh, has, has a, those ties are also being uh, weakened by uh, Portuguese actions. Um, and so it, during the American Revolution, for example, um, the, the Marquis of Pombal uh, begins to embargo uh, imports uh, of provisions from America because he doesn't he, he's trying to finesse his relationship with uh, with Great Britain um, and his alliance with Great Britain. Um, he at this time, Pombal has a lot of competing interests. Um, but in the end, he essentially is going to come down on, on the side of Great Britain. Uh, Portugal is officially neutral during the American Revolution, uh, but in a sort of gesture of goodwill, Pombal does, to, in a gesture of goodwill toward Great Britain, Pombal does embargo, um, uh, he, he embargoes British American goods uh, that are coming to, to Portugal. And so the American Revolution uh, has a, a very negative impact on British American and, and Portuguese trade. As a follow-up, uh, just to 
to specifically, how did the uh, specifically the 1764 Sugar Act imperil British American trade with Portugal and complicate smuggling? And then, can you also address the Restraining Act? Yeah. So, um, so the the Sugar Act, as I said, it's it's really the first time uh, in a long time that Portugal has done anything to restrict uh, trade between the Portuguese Empire and British America. And what the what the 1764 Sugar Act is going to do is place duties on uh, on Madeira wine, and that becomes a, a problem not only for U.S. or excuse me for British American trade with Madeira, but it also becomes a problem for British American trade with with Portugal itself uh, and with Lisbon, because smugglers in British America had long made a habit of bringing. Lisbon wines, which were not exempted from the Navigation Acts, they bring them to Madeira and switch them uh, for, or, or they uh, switch the um, the cargoes that they were carried in, um, and and basically repackage Lisbon wine as Madeira wine because Madeira wine did not have uh, duties placed on it and was not. Um, was not subject to the, um, uh, excuse me, to the navigation acts. And so, uh, there was a, there was a large smuggling network between Lisbon and British America and the data kind of served as, uh, the, the middle person, uh, where you could switch out Lisbon wines for Madeira for, uh, Madeira wines and, and carry Lisbon wines under cover of Madeira wines into British America. And so, uh, when Madeira wines start to be uh, onerously taxed under the Sugar Act, it sort of ruins those smuggling networks and it ruins trade with Madeira. Um, and so it, it has a particularly negative effect on uh, British American trade with the, with the Portuguese empire. Um, by the time, and so uh, British Americans begin to, uh, like I said, in 1774, they, uh, begin, they incorporate Madeira wine into their list of goods that they're going to boycott under the Articles of Association, which uh, was a large swath of items that they were going to boycott from the, from the British Empire. Uh, but because Madeira wine was so wrapped up in British trade, uh, a lot of British merchants are in Madeira. In fact, almost all British, ex- uh, all, almost all wine exporters, major wine exporters, are actually British Madeirans rather than, than uh, Madeirans, native Madeirans or Portuguese Madeirans. Um, and so Madeira gets wrapped into these articles of, of association as part of, of a colonial protest. Um, and by 1775, uh, the, the British, after the colonists say, we are going to boycott British goods, <clears throat> the British essentially say, well, if you're not going to trade with us, you're not going to trade with anybody. And in 1775, they passed the Restraining Acts, um, and they begin to really clamp down on, um, on, exter- on trade, British-American trade, um, inter-imperial trade on smuggling. Um, they step up their... Uh, patrol br- British men of war step up their patrol of smuggling. Um, and so it begins to make it very difficult. Americans for a long time had depended on smuggling uh, to continue on their trade uh, with the Portuguese empire, whether it was from Portugal and in a lot of cases with, with Brazil. American smugglers had made their way to Brazil 
and tried to import Brazilian sugars and, uh, you know, with any luck, Brazilian gold into uh, British America. But as men of war patrols tightened, um, really beginning in, in the mid 1770s, that becomes harder and harder to maintain those smuggling networks for British Americans. And so uh, they, they find it more difficult to carry on either legal trade or illegal trade with the, with the Portuguese empire. So on that note, uh, to elaborate, why did Portugal focus then on domestic production after uh, the war, the revolutionary war? And what were the consequences of a decline in uh, U.S. Madeira consumption and Portuguese trade restrictions on the U.S. provisioning trade? Yeah, so so like I like I mentioned, uh, or I guess I gave a, I, I briefly mentioned the Marquis of Pombal. Uh, let me go a little bit further into his history to really help us understand why Portugal is, by the end of the Revolutionary War, was beginning to prohibit or wanted to prohibit. U.S. provisions, now U.S. provisions from entering uh, Portugal. Uh, the Marquis de uh, Pombal, um, as he's known, uh, came to power with the Lisbon earthquake in 1755. The Lisbon earthquake was an incredibly powerful earthquake, an incredibly destructive earthquake just off, uh, the, off the coast of Lisbon in the uh, Tagus, in the River Tagus. Um, and it caused seismic waves that, dis- that destroyed Lisbon. Um, it, it, buildings crumbled, cathedrals crumbled, ki- uh, killed parishioners. This was on All Saints Day in 1755. A lot of people are at church and buildings and these, these heavy stone-built churches come crumbling down, um, kill thousands of people. Um, fires begin to escape hearths. The wind picks up and spreads the fires. I mean, it, the, the, the earthquake was essentially... An, an Aristotelian nightmare where earth, wind, fire, and water really combined to, to destroy Lisbon. Um, and Pombal is the first minister under, uh, Jose, uh, under Don Jose, who was the king of Portugal at the time. And Pombal uses the opportunity. Jose really wanted nothing to do with trying to rebuild Lisbon. Um, Jose, Jose seems to have been uh, terror-struck by the earthquake in a lot of ways. Um, and he, he wasn't a very effective leader before before the earthquake hit anyway. And so Pombal really uses the opportunity to seize the reins of government from, from the king and begin to implement his own, um, his own idea of what a Portuguese economy should look like. And so after 1755, uh, the Portuguese government really is beginning to try to um, separate itself from its ties, its strong ties to Britain, not sever them, them completely, but he, but Pombal really wants to weaken the ties, the, the stranglehold that he feels um, Britain has on uh, Portuguese commerce. Um, now, he's effective to some degree, uh, but what he really does is, as he makes it more difficult for uh, British manufacturers to send their goods to Portugal, they begin to look elsewhere. And one of the places that they look is British America. In the beginning of the 1750s and 1760s, we see British Americans really ramp up the number of um, imports that they're receiving from Great Britain. And that's per- spurred, at least in part, by um, 
the Marquis of Pombal trying to trying to make it more difficult to, for Brit- the British to uh, send their imports to Portugal. Um, and yet, at the same time, Pombal inadvertently, even as he weakened ties with Great Britain, he inadvertently strengthened ties with the British, uh, with British America, because as British Americans begin to import more British goods, as re- part, again, partly as a result of Pombal's policies, um, as they begin to import more British goods, they need some way to pay for them. And they pay for them by stepping up their exports, their provisions exports, to Portugal. And so he inadvertently uh, strengthens his ties with British America, and he inadvertently only makes Portugal more dependent on British America for its provisions. And so he begins to, that, that's part of the calculation when he decides to cut off American imports into Portugal. It's a good opportunity um, as British Americans are cutting ties with the British government, it's a good opportunity for him to say, oh, okay, look, Great Britain, we're on your side. We're going to cut ties with British America as well in terms of economic ties. And that will give Portugal the chance to step up its domestic production. Um, He wants to start growing wheat. He wants to start producing flour mills so that they can grind their own wheat into flour. And this becomes somewhat of of a national project beginning in the 1770s. So in the 1780s, by the end of the American Revolution, British Americans look at this situation, look at their, the embargo, the Portuguese embargo against their, against their provisions, and they say, well, look, this is, you know, with the end of the, with the, end of the revolution, um, we should be able to persuade Portugal, now that we're an independent country, to begin allowing our um, provisions, you know, we're not rebellious colonies anymore. Um, it, it won't offend the British anymore if he allows us to send our goods to Portugal again. So hopefully we'll start having flour, uh, sending flour and rice and wheat in large quantities to Portugal uh, once again, uh, just like we did before the revolution. Um, but and, and by this time, Pombal is out of power and uh, Maria the first is ascended to the throne. Um, but she, she still has different ideas from the Americans and essentially they want the Portuguese want to continue on this project product project of, um, domestic production of their own provisions. And so they continue to, to prohibit, um, wheat, American wheat and flour, uh, and other provisions from, from entering Portugal. And so the, the revolution the American Revolution didn't just sever ties. I, Americans kind of conceived that it was just going to sever ties for a short time during the revolution itself. And after a successful revolution, they picked those ties back up where they left off. Um, but that didn't happen. The Portuguese had, had really no incentive to uh, import, start importing a lot of goods from, uh, from the United States and become dependent once again on, on American provisions. So... Let's shift to the uh, 1790s and the uh, the early 1800s. And well, actually, before we do that, though, during the 1790s, how did U.S. free trade advocates combine elements of British Whig tradition and Enlightenment era political economy to cast smuggling, republicanism, and free trade as what you describe as complementary components of the same liberal ideology? Yeah. So. <clears throat> 
um, in part of their justification for ramping up their smuggling in the 1760s as Britain was trying to impose uh, more economic restrictions on the colonies, um, Americans made good use of Enlightenment ideology to suggest that they had a natural right to free trade. They, they had a natural right to, um, to not have these restrictions, these economic restrictions that Portugal was trying, or excuse me, that Great Britain was was trying to place on them. And so in, in America, in North America, um, they began to conceive of a, a tidy syllogism where they equated uh, republicanism, or excuse me, independence from Europe with republicanism and republicanism with free trade and free trade with prosperity. And so they began to, and it was always a bit of a myth, uh, but they began to uh, assume that republics would become the the protectors of natural law, including the natural law of free trade, versus empires and monarchies that imposed mercantilism and economic restrictions on peoples. And so they looked, uh, Americans early on looked at republicanism as an answer to European uh, uh, mercantilism and and of course European mercantilism uh, had never gone uncontested. It, it was always contested, including in in Europe and in, in governments in European governments themselves. But uh, Americans begin to draw this this tidy sort of simplistic equation of republics with free trade and uh, European monarchies with mercantilism, and so they begin to. Um, they assume that smuggling is just a part of that culture uh, because any sort of um, restriction against trade can be legitimately violated uh, to uphold natural law. In fact, I think uh, Fisher Rames, a representative from Massachusetts, uh, said, it, said it best when he suggested um, that the, uh, in his words, he said something to the effect of, the habit of smuggling pervades our country. We were taught it when it was considered meritorious rather than criminal, uh, suggesting that during the revolution, smuggling had see, been seen as a benefit, had been seen as, a, in his word, to use his word, meritorious um, rather rather than a crime. Um, and so they look at smuggling as a sort of Republican answer to unnatural restrictions on trade by by monarchies um, and this gets wrapped into the idea also of revolution that um, that republicanism has to be implemented um, in order to have free trade and so you either you either need to smuggle or you need to have a republican revolution if you're going to have free trade. Um, and so they begin, they, they apply that to their own experience during the American Revolution. And as they get back on the American Revolution, they think of their experience of, you know, of smuggling as a sort of a heroic deed, as a heroic protest against British restrictions. And so moving forward, as they look at European colonies in South America and in the Caribbean, they continue that, they, they continue that, ideology forward, um, essentially saying now, um, 
either these colonies have to have republican revolutions for us to trade free, to trade freely with these colonies, or um, we need to go ahead and, and just violate political laws uphold and uphold natural law and smuggle in these colonies, including, uh, of course, uh, Brazil. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Please elucidate the formation and significance of underground free trade cabals in Brazil, um, as well as Portuguese liberal reform and magistrate refusal to, quote, equate free trade with republicanism. The magistrates tolerated more open commerce only insofar as it benefited government coffers. In, in your elucidation, uh, if you can, please address the role of Thomas Jefferson, the, uh, the minus tre- treachery, as well as contraband in U.S. smuggling. Sure. Um, so in uh, North America, um, as I said, they begin to have this ideology as they look south and they look to South American colonies that they've, they've coveted for a long time. As I mentioned, some North Americans tried to go to Brazil to smuggle with Brazilians. Um, during their when they were still part of the British Empire. Um, and so they've had their eyes on South America for a long time, and particularly uh, Brazil. Uh, Brazil is beginning by the, by the 1790s to be seen as the major prize of the Portuguese Empire. And that Portugal really do, is sort of meaningless without Brazil, and not only the Brazilian gold that has been coming from, uh, from the colony, but also... Uh, Brazilian sugar, um, especially, and, and coffee and other agricultural exports that begin to really take off in the 1790s. Um, and so they look at Brazil uh, really with a covetous eye. And as I said, the, the assumption is that they the Brazilians either need, need to revolutionize or Americans will just go ahead and smuggle with Brazil. And by the end of the 1780s, really both methods seem feasible because Brazilians, uh, just as Americans wanted freer trade with Brazil, Brazilians wanted freer trade with the world. Um, and they clamored for freer trade with the, with the Portuguese monarchy. <clears throat> and there had been some give and take there over, over the years. Um, and the Portuguese monarchy had conceded some, some items uh, that, the, that Brazilian traders wanted um, but Brazilians still looked to enhance their free trade with the, with the world by the 1780s. And what we begin to see in the 1780s, 1780s are some of these uh, sort of underground cabals. We see people beginning to discuss clandestinely um, enlightenment ideology. Um, some Brazilian revolutionaries start to study the the American uh, Articles of Confederation and state constitutions in the mid 1780s, and this starts to come to uh, starts to make itself manifest. I guess I see I should say when some Brazilian revolutionaries reached out to Thomas Jefferson, he was an ambassador in France, and Jefferson started to receive 
uh, very interesting correspondence from a Brazilian who wrote uh, under the pseudonym of Vendek, not wanting to reveal himself in his writings. But he asked Jefferson for a secret meeting while Jefferson was in France because Vendek at this time uh, was also studying in France, even though he, he uh, hailed from, from Rio de Janeiro. And so Jefferson and Vendek, as, as he's known uh, to, at this time to Jefferson, they arrange a secret meeting in France. And it's sort of an indication of Jefferson's interest that on a trip to southern France, he, he went pretty well out of his way to meet this mysterious correspondent in Nîmes. And he went to Nîmes, Jefferson said, under the pretext of seeing the antiquities of the place, even though he, he went to have this secret meeting. And in that secret meeting, he met a young revolutionary in ill, Ill health named José Joaquín Mayaí Barba, uh, who revealed himself as Vendek. And so Mai Barbario begins to expound his thoughts to Jefferson about how the Brazilians can have a successful revolution. Uh, he says that the Portuguese uh, military in, that's stationed in Brazil was really listless. They uh, were slovenly. They wouldn't put up much of a fight in the case of a revolution. Uh, he very optimistically suggested that slaves would throw their lots in with their masters, uh, which, of course, borders uh, on uh, optimism to the to the point of um, you know, mythicism, but um, he he tries to lay out this uh, compelling case for a successful revolution in Brazil. Well, at the time, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, as ambassadors in Europe, had been trying to hammer out some sort of trade agreement with Portugal, and Portugal had not only refused um, Americans' entrance into into Brazil, uh, but Adams and, and Jefferson, by this point, by 1787, by 1786, had realized that, that Portugal was not going to reopen its borders to American provisions. And so the idea of a Brazilian revolution becomes very interesting to Jefferson, uh, where essentially if, if Americans can't get into Brazil by a trade agreement with the Portuguese monarchy, perhaps they can get into Brazil uh, after a Republican revolution, revolution occurs there. So the, the date is very interesting, 1786, when he has this discussion with, these, uh, with this potential Brazilian revolutionary, because this is still three years before uh, the outbreak of the French Revolution. Um, so really Jefferson's first interaction with uh, a, a people who are looking to throw off the chains of monarchy, as he saw it, um, and institute a Republican in this new world order were Brazilians rather than the French, which, uh, as I mentioned, wouldn't uh, come along until a few years later. And so, so Jefferson is intrigued in 1786 by these overtures from Brazilians. Now, he did say uh, that they were still trying, hoping to cultivate good relations with Portugal. And he told, he, he told Maia e Barbado during this meeting that, well, I, I, I'm not really speaking as a U.S. representative right now, uh, but as a private individual, I can say that, a, uh, in his words, a successful revolution in Brazil would not be uninteresting to us. So in some ways, he sort of gave Maia e Barbado a non-answer. But he did leave the meeting very intrigued with this possibility of the Brazilian revolution, and he writes to the um, foreign se the uh, Secretary of Foreign Affairs at the time, uh, John Jay, and 
informs John Jay about this meeting. It, it explains some of the things that they talked about. And uh, again, says that, well, I understand that we're probably not going to aid Brazilian revolutionaries. We're in no, we're in no position to do that. But we should keep our eye on developments there because they could become very interesting. Um, and, and indeed they do, and, uh, especially in 1788. Um, there's a, a small conspiracy, unsuccessful conspiracy, but still a, a conspiracy that in a lot of ways rattled the uh, Portuguese monarchy. Um, a, a small group of, of plotters, uh, again, who had looked at the, uh, who had studied closely the American Articles of Confederation, state constitutions, um, and things of that sort, um, did uh, begin to plot an, an independence movement in the Brazilian province of Minas Gerais, which was the major gold-producing province of Brazil. And so these plotters, um, they're going to be, uh, they, they expect, and indeed Portugal was planning on um, throwing on them an additional tax, a, a poll tax or a head tax, in uh, in 1788, and so when these Minas conspirators hear about this ta this tax, it's called the the Hama that the Portuguese Empire is going to place going to uh, place on Brazilians. They begin to make their move for Brazilian independence. They concoct a plan. A uh, a lieutenant in the military named Chira Dentes is going to you know again according to their plan. Uh, to decapitate the governor, um, the an, another conspirator who is also in the military will command his troops to stand down. He'll demand of the people what they desire, at which point Chiradenchis would raise the bloody head of the governor and demand the liberty of the people, and, and a revolution would ensue among the people. Well, like all great plans, this uh, planned revolution um, was foiled by internal treachery. One of the conspirators uh, had, um, had betrayed his, uh, his fellow conspirators. He, he um, denounced the plot to the governor, um, and Chita Benchis ended up being um, hanged and quartered. For, but uh, it did, and especially during the trials of these conspirators, it did rattle the Portuguese government because the conspirators... Uh, made very clear um, in in their testimonies um, that they had drawn on ideas of the American Revolution and, and that in a lot of ways they did look at the American Revolution as a sort of um, inspiration for what they were trying to concoct to um, implement free trade and republicanism in Brazil. And so... The, the Portuguese government becomes very worried, of course. Uh, you know, they're just, they're looking at what just happened to the British government. And so the Portuguese government begins to make concessions to Brazilians in a major way, um, and particularly concessions in the slave trade between, uh, between Brazil and Africa. And the Portuguese government assumes that if they can appease Brazilians, um, that they will strengthen the empire and that they can dissociate trade liberalization from republicanism. And, and therefore, if, if trade liberalization is associated with monarchy, 
rather than republicanism, then Brazilians, of course, have no need to revolutionize um, to to enjoy free trade. And um, and by and large, the Portuguese government is successful in its strategy. Brazilians begin to associate the Portuguese monarchy with trade liberalization rather than republicanism. By the 1790s, um, the Portuguese government had liberalized, as I said, the slave trade uh, between Brazil and Africa, um, made it easier for Brazilians to acquire slaves from Africa, uh, but it also, to some extent, had um, given Brazilians uh, one of the things that they most desired, which was, which was some measure of freer trade with Spanish America in which they could sell slaves to Spanish America and import Spanish gold from Potosí. Um, they had done that by smuggling for a long time, but now they could do it uh, you know, without, the, without the risks of smuggling because the, Portu- the Portuguese government had liberalized it. And so by the end of the 1790s, uh, Brazilian officials and Brazilian traders are starting to assume, uh, are starting to associate monarchy and trade liberalization rather than republicanism and trade liberalization. And so we see the we see Brazil and North America starting to go in two different direct uh, trajectories in terms of how they viewed free trade and its relationship with with political systems. So continuing that part of the story, how and why did the Portuguese monarchy establish a dynasty in uh, Rio de Janeiro for open ports as the quote liberator of commerce? And what were the, quote, liberal advantages for U.S. traders and the consequences of the 1807 embargo for these same traders? Yeah, so, so really in 1807 and 1808, we see the flips script, the, the scripts flipped in a lot of ways. Um, so you have Portuguese, um, what happens essentially is Napoleon. Um, in 1807, in late 1807, Napoleon plans an invasion of Portugal. Um, Great Britain and and France had sort of tussled over Portuguese loyalties uh, for several years, and the Portuguese tried to carve out some semblance of neutrality. Um, but in the end, uh, Napoleon essentially got tired of waiting for them and, and decided he was just going to invade Portugal and essentially compel them uh, to submission. And so that throws the Portuguese monarchy uh unreservedly really into the, into the arms of the British and the British help the Portuguese monarchy, the entire Royal family and the entire court, somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people who, who in November of 1807 actually load up ships and sail across the Atlantic and move the Portuguese uh, monarchy, the seat of monarchy to Rio de Janeiro rather than Lisbon. And the thinking is, well, the French may occupy Lisbon, but they won't have conquered the empire. The empire will continue, even though we're, uh, the you know the, the monarchy is now based out of Rio de Janeiro. And so, part of that, as part of that move, uh, the Prince Regent, who is now uh, who is now reigning um, on behalf of his of his mother Maria I, the Prince Regent Don Juan VI, uh, essentially has to uh, is forced to open Brazilian ports to the wider world. Um, Great Britain basically says, well, we can supply, we can uh, convey you across, help convey you across the Atlantic um, and give the monarchy protection against France, uh, but it's going to take concessions. And the concessions are opening Brazil 
to uh, to foreign commerce. And so that's what essentially gets Brazil to open its doors to uh, foreign nations, including the United States. So in a lot of ways, Napoleon did for uh, North American traders what Thomas Jefferson could not do uh, by opening Brazilian ports to them. Um, and so this really, in a, in a lot of ways, culminates the idea among Brazilians that monarchy uh, is not at all opposed to free trade. And, and in fact, they begin to hail Don Juan VI as what they called the liberator of commerce. Um, and so this completely flips on its head the, the American idea that, that monarchies are inherently opposed to free trade. And what really flips the script even more is that at the same time, really within a month of the Portuguese come, landing in, um, in Brazil, the U.S. Congress had passed the Embargo Act of 1807 that prohibited trade with foreign nations uh, among, among Americans. And, and they did that, uh, of course, to try to assert their sovereignty um, in the face of, um, uh, of threats to their sovereignty by the Portuguese and the, and the British. Um, and the Americans were, were essentially trying to compel European nations to respect their neutrality and their right to, uh, to neutral trade um, with belligerent nations. Um, but what it really did was uh, really throw open uh, or throw out this idea that Republicans were uh, equated with free trade and monarchies uh, were associated with uh, trade restrictions. Because at the very time you have the, the Portuguese monarchy opening Brazil, you have the American Republic closing uh, foreign, foreign imports, or excuse me, foreign exports. And so this, is, uh, this creates a real conundrum for uh, American free traders who had always drawn this nice syllogism between republicanism and free trade. Um, and what it really showed in a lot of ways was that that narrative, uh, that myth really, was just never quite as tidy as Americans like to believe. And in fact, uh, what really um, exposed this even more was that it was, of course, Thomas Jefferson's administration who had called for the embargo. The person in, who in 1786 had had the first um you know, the first discussions with Brazilian revolutionaries about the possibility of a republic opening in Brazil that would be open to free trade with the United States. Um, so by the time he gets to 1807, Thomas Jefferson has now implemented the very embargo uh, that reduces or, or that makes trade with Brazil illegal in the United States at the very moment that it became that foreign trade became legal in Brazil. What happened after the U.S. federal government lifted the 1807 embargo, particularly in regards to U.S. officials and free traders' conceptions of U.S. republicanism, as well as the U.S. provisioning trade in Luso-Atlantic commerce during the Napoleonic Wars that you mentioned? Yeah, so uh, so the embargo itself, as, as we know it, is, is lifted um, by what's called the Non-Intercourse Act of, of 1809. And in the Non-Intercourse Act, the Congress essentially said, well you know, we allow trade with anybody who respects uh, our neutral rights. And that, of course, included Brazil. But by that time, uh, the embargo had given 
the British a strong upper hand in Brazil. And in fact, Henry Hill, who was a U.S. consul in Salvador, um, in, in 1808, when the, Brit- or when the Portuguese monarchy came to Rio de Janeiro, Henry Hill uh, was very uh, fulsome in his praise uh, about this move. And he suggested that this is going to open Brazilian ports and it's going to open, a, you know, hopefully a liberal trade relationship between the United States and Brazil. And uh, maybe even so much that we can actually muscle the British out of South America. Um, and that was always um, a little too optimistic anyway, but certainly when the, British, when the U.S. government implemented the embargo, it became especially uh, difficult for Americans to you know, muscle out the British because Americans were prohibited from going to Brazil. And so in the meantime, the British had uh, made quite a strong entrance into the Brazilian trade, and they turned to Brazil to import um, goods that they could not get from the United States due to the embargo. And so the embargo really only strengthened uh, ties between the British and Brazil um, rather than uh, rather than opening up any sort of really advantageous trade between the United States and Brazil. Um, and so even after the Non-Intercourse Act opens Brazil once again to U.S., to U.S. commerce or, or allows U.S. traders to go to Brazil, um, they really had no no way of competing with, with the British by that point. The British had made a strong push into Brazil already, and uh, trade with Brazil continued to suffer. And what, what caused it to suffer even more uh, was that the, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the, the um, time that we now call the, the Peninsular War, when Napoleon was at war with, uh, with Spain um, and also with Portugal now, that uh, was really in full swing. So uh, in 1808, the British um, take back Lisbon from, uh, from, the, from the French. And they begin to, the, with all of these troops, with all of these British troops, in Portugal, they begin to demand more provisions, and they want they are getting those provisions in large part from the United States, again from Pennsylvania, New York, and, and Maryland, uh, who are sending loads of flour and wheat and other breadstuff to uh, to Portugal for the British armies that are fighting in Portugal, um, and so that turns U.S. attention back to Portugal at the very time, at the very instant that Brazil became open to U.S. Uh, trade, um, U.S. traders had sort of lost interest in Brazil because the, the trade in Portugal was so good. Prices were so high because bread scarcities due to war, due to uh, the, the influx in troops there. Um, and so they became so high, prices became so high and business so good in Portugal on British military accounts, that that Americans, a lot of uh, a lot of U.S. traders, actually began to um, shed some of their debts to uh, British uh, to British creditors, and actually uh, U.S. traders in some instances began to become uh, creditors to to the British, who were importing copious amount, copious amounts on the accounts of the British military, um, and so it was. Trade, you know, not only had they been 
really disappointed that uh, you know Brazil was not becoming a Republican free trade partner. That they were still you know it was a monarchy who was opening trade in Brazil and that wasn't really doing them any good. Uh, they were actually enhancing their position to the British due to their trade with Europe, not with the Americas. And they had always conceived of the Western Hemisphere, uh, and Americans had, had tended to conceive of the Western Hemisphere as a, a haven, a future haven for republics. And so in all sorts of ways, the, the scripts are getting flipped, as I say, on, on Americans who want to associate the Western Hemisphere re- with republics and with and republics with free trade and free trade with prosperity, uh, whereas they're now trading uh, more with Portugal than they ever have with Brazil, and they're uh, you know in in Brazil they're allowed to trade in Brazil now, but it's with a monarchy rather than a republic. So this uh, really um, splashes cold water on all of their on all of their ideas about republicanism, free trade, and and independence. So please, please briefly trace the rise and fall of the 1817 insurgency in the Brazilian province of Pernambuco. Please, if you can, also address U.S. promises to insurgents for, quote, absolute liberty of commerce and the consequences of blockaded insurgent dependency on the U.S. provisioning trade. Yeah, so, so when I say that... Um Americans, uh, the U.S. traders really sort of turned away from Brazil and the Brazilian monarchy and started to do a lot of business with, with Portugal. Um, they, they really just um, delayed rather than abandoned their vision of the Western Hemisphere as a series of free trade republics. So after the, after the Napoleonic Wars, after the War of 1812, uh, Americans begin to look again to South America. Um, the, with, the, with the end of the Napoleonic Wars, they're no longer sending uh, their breadstuff, their flour, their wheat into, into Portugal in the same quantities that they were. And uh, that trade drops off very quickly. And so they again begin to, ter- in terms of their trade with the Portuguese empire, they again turn their attention toward Brazil. And they still want to, uh, to believe that Brazil will someday soon become a republic rather than a monarchy that will really that will give the United States preference in their trade. And they start to see, they think they start to see that promise fulfilled in 1817 when a, a northeastern province in Brazil called Pernambuco uh, begins to revolt against the Brazilian, against the Portuguese monarchy based in Rio de Janeiro. So in, in 1817, uh, in March of, of 1817, um, Pernambucans begin to, to revolt. Uh, they have new taxes imposed on them by the Portuguese government. That at the same time, they're facing a drought. Things are not looking good in Pernambuco, and they blame a lot of it on the economic control that Rio de Janeiro has on them. And so they begin to revolutionize against, uh, against the Brazilian government. And so North Americans who observe this, start to say, this is it. This is the chance that we have to help Brazil become a republic and to really fulfill its republican destiny and for us to garner free trade uh, as, as a result of that. And in some, and Pernambucans uh, fostered that idea. Pernambucan revolutionaries 
um, did send envoys to the United States. They were never officially received, but those envoys were promising free trade with the United States, low duties. Um, and uh, so Americans begin to look uh, optimistically at Pernambuco. Um, and that, that was fraught with some tension, though. You, have, you do have some Americans who essentially say, look, the monarchy is, resides in Brazil. Brazil is already independent. And that's what we should worry about. And then, uh, then others uh, dispute that and say, no, what we need is a republic. It's not enough that Brazil has a monarchy uh, or that Brazil is independent. It still has a monarchy. We need it to be the republic. And then they'll favor U.S. trade, trade between sister republics. Um, and so a lot of Brazilian or a lot of U.S. traders begin to send support, whether moral support or in a lot of ways, um, financial support by sending munitions, um, to, to Brazilian revolutionaries. And they begin to supply Pernambucan revolutionaries with provisions and they're selling provisions of just skyrocketing prices in Pernambuco. Like I said, Pernambuco was facing a drought. And so Pernambuco begins to promise Americans everything that they had hoped for with Brazil, a very um, a very lucrative trade partner uh, who is committed to to independence, complete independence from any European monarchy and republicanism, who is paying really high prices for American provisions. Um, now, in the short term, that that's really bolstered by this drought that, that causes Pernambucans to really rely on U.S. provisions. Um, and yet the fact that that drought coincided with this revolution gave Americans cause for a lot of optimism as they're you know, reaping benefits hand over fist by sending flour and other goods to, uh, to Pernambucans. Um, and yet the, the revolution in, in Pernambuco begins in early March, and by mid-June it's been quashed. The Portuguese government has gone in, it's blockaded uh, the, the major Pernambucan port of Recife, and the, the, for all intents and purposes, the, the revolution is over by June. And so what Pernambuco really represents is simply another false start for uh, two Americans and their quest for trade with, with Brazil. Um, so they've, they've had several false starts. Thomas Jefferson's false start with Brazilian revolutionaries in the 1780s, uh, the 1807, uh, or the, the false start that was really quashed, not, not of course by the Portuguese monarchy, but by, uh, the trade embargo. Um, and now the false start of the Pernambucan rebellion in 1817. Um, and so in a lot of ways, the Pernambucan rebellion comes to represent uh, the sort of lost promise of Brazil. Similarly, can you uh, please briefly trace the rise, fall, and aftermath of the 1816-1820 Artigas Rebellion in the Banda Oriental? Um, in your very brief narrative, please address one or all of the following. The Neutrali Neutrality Act of 1817, uh, privateering, Diplomacy in, in what you describe as Atlantic border waters, as well as that racialized criticism, the 1819 Piracy Act, and, if possible, William Redding's, quote, Republican pirates. Right. So so just as things were starting to calm down in Pernambuco, things were just starting to heat up in, in the south of Brazil. 
in a region known as the Banda Oriental, which for all intents and purposes is basically modern-day Uruguay. Um, and Artigas, Jose Herbacio Artigas, was a revolutionary strongman in, in that region who was fighting for a radical form of republicanism, uh, really against uh, Spain. Uh, but he's also fighting, once Buenos Aires starts to assume its independence from Spain, Jose Arvacio Artigas is also fighting against Buenos Aires, against Buenos Aires's centralizing tendencies. He wants to maintain the, he wants the Banda Oriental to maintain its autonomy, not surrender it to Buenos, just surrender it you know, from, uh, from Spain to Buenos Aires. Um, and in the midst of this confusion, the Portuguese uh, government uh, had long had its eye on the Banda Oriental, but for a long time, the Spanish and Portuguese had uh, had conflicts over the Banda Oriental. It was essentially a, a borderland between the uh, between Spanish and Portuguese America, and so the, the Portuguese uh, military invades the Banda Oriental, and so Americans who are observing this view it as another encroachment by a monarchy against republicanism in Brazil, that Jose Arvacio Artigas was once again promising republicanism, and we see a monarchy, the Portuguese monarchy, stepping in to quash republicanism. Well, as part of his quest for independence and autonomy, Jose Arvacio Artigas begins to supply commissions to North Americans, uh, to uh, privateer commissions, uh, to prey on Spanish and Portuguese shipping. The problem with these commissions is that Jose Vasio Ortigas really has uh, no recognition from the international community. So the people uh, who he gives privateer commissions to really inhabit a very shadowy legal space between a privateer and a pirate. And indeed, most people come, including uh, the, the U.S. government and James Monroe, begin to see them more as pirates than as any sort of legitimate privateer. Uh, and yet these uh, a lot of Americans look at these privateers, and this is where we get into William Redding's description of them as Republican pirates. William Redding was a um, was the editor of the Maryland Censor, um, and he wrote very glowingly about these Republican pirates who were going down and basically uh, really giving it to the Portuguese uh, monarchy um, and uh, helping to uh, fulfill Brazil's quest for republicanism um, in the in the face of the failed Pernambucan rebellion. Um, and so these Artigan privateers, though, are going to cause a problem for the U.S. government in that by 1819, the U.S. government has a good chance to secure, to finally secure a commercial treaty with the Portuguese Empire. And that would allow them, hopefully, some good trade advantages in Brazil that might actually help them compete with the British. But the Portuguese government will not treat with the U.S. government until the U.S. government does something about these privateers. And so the U.S. government begins to suppress uh, these pirate-slash-privateers who are um, fighting in on behalf of, of Artigas. And they do that in a couple of ways and with the Piracy Act of, of 1819 um, the, that makes it more difficult for, the, for pirates. It also uh, threatens them with capital punishment if they're caught. Um, and then there's a, an 1820 act that uh, essentially bars these privateers, uh, slash, again, slash pirates. You kind of can use that, chain, that term interchangeably when discussing these, these uh, privateers. Um, it bars them from relanding their vessels or in 
American ports and U.S. ports. Uh, and so they may be able to outfit a privateer vessel and go down and plunder in South America, but they can't return to the United States once they do that. And, and so the Piracy Act combined with that act um, really start to, uh, and also combined with, with the 1819 financial crisis, economic crisis in the United States, really puts a pinch on uh, these pirates who are sailing in um, in favor of Artigas, so that by by 1820, the United States really had quelled uh, privateering in South, this illegal or illicit privateering in South America. Uh, and yet again, it it sort of uh, shows this uh, the, the myth of republicanism of, uh, in the Western Hemisphere and a free trade ideology that. The United States government suppressed Artigan, these Artigan privateers, as I call them, or as William Redding called them, the, these Republican pirates. The U.S. government is suppressing Republican pirates so that it can uh, sign a, a free trade agreement or at least a, an advantageous trade agreement with the Portuguese monarchy. So we start to see this continual and gradual, gradual shift away from this association between republicanism and free trade. How and why did the socio-political movement to approve the U.S. tariff of 1824, as well as Brazilian acceptance of the transplanted monarchy, reconfigure the U.S. free trade ideology? Further, what was the significance of tumultuous provinces, race, and the slave trade before and after the 1837 the Haitian independence movement. Um, yeah, so this is um, this is actually an interesting question when we talk about the tariff of 1824. And in some ways, the, the tariff of 1824 doesn't reconfigure the, the free trade ideology debate. In some ways, it actually reinforces it. When, when um, Henry Clay was pushing for uh, tariffs and, and Henry Clay and others were pushing for tariffs in the United States, uh, their assumption was well, we need tariffs on British goods so that we can enhance our manufacturers that we can then hopefully throw into South America because we'll have free trade with South American republics. So in some ways, the tariff actually reinforces the tariff of 1824 paradoxically reinforces the idea that Americans want want free trade among Western, among Republicans in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and that really the tariffs are more an, uh, a means to that end uh, rather than the end itself. Um, and so we, we see this continuation of free trade ideology and its association with, with Republicanism still, even, even by the 1820s. Uh, and yet in terms of Brazil, that, that association continues to find it to, to be thwarted um, because Brazil uh, in 1821, the Portuguese court returns to Portugal for a lot of reasons we don't have time to go into. But in 1821, the Portuguese court returns to Lisbon and that exposes Brazil to rumblings for independence and Brazilians declare independence in 1822, but it's the, the monarch's son Dom Pedro, the Portuguese monarch's son, Dom Pedro, 
who declares Brazilian independence and institutes a monarchy in Brazil. And so Americans, even once, once Brazil declares complete independence from Europe, it still retains a monarchy. And so Americans still will not be trading. Even after Brazilian independence, they still won't be trading with a Republican, um, with a Republican nation in South America, well, in, at least in Brazil. Um, and so, uh, again, it's uh, Brazilian independence kind of opens a false promise to Americans. And there's still talk into the 1820s, into the late 1820s, saying, well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of take what we can get. At least Brazil is independent, but maybe someday they'll turn into a republic. And what we what we begin to see, though, with the 1837 Bahian independence movement is that Americans kind of shrug at it. And the Americans who don't shrug at it are really actually turned off by it. The, the, the Bahian independence movement, Bahia, uh, is a, a province uh, toward the northeast of Brazil. And it declares a short, short uh, term independence movement in, in 1837. And, and yet Americans look at it and they worry that what they're beginning to see is a, a slave revolt in Bahia because the Bahian independence movement did, did wrap up, uh, wrap a lot of, um, free blacks and slaves into, into its ranks. And so, Americans who are becoming increasingly sensitive about uh, their own slave, their own growing slave empire, um, are really touchy about anything that resembles a slave rebellion, even if it's a Republican slave rebellion. And they, so they begin to look at the Bahian independence movement with skepticism rather than with optimism. And with fear rather than with optimism, and, and essentially uh, what we begin to see by the 1830s and continuing into the Civil War is a reorientation of imagining Brazil. For a long time, Americans had wanted to to understand Brazil in terms of their nice ideology that equated free trade with republicanism and independence and monarchy with mercantilism and trade restrictions. Um, and yet getting toward the end of the age of revolution, Americans begin to look at Brazil uh, after so many false starts, they begin to look at Brazil as a fellow slave power rather than a sister republic. I have a final question for you, Professor Reeder. Uh, what's going on with you next? Are you working on any uh, prospective projects? Is there anything you can disclose to us? Oh yeah, yeah. Thank you for for asking. Actually, the uh, my next project I'm uh, keeping with U.S. foreign relations, but I am looking at um, the history of uh, foreign meddling in early American politics um, from between uh, the the 1780s and, and the Monroe Doctrine. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll give one one spoiler alert: it wasn't the Russians back then. <laughs> Excellent. I will hope, we hope you uh, remember the New Books Network for that project. Yeah, thank you. So uh, the book is Smugglers, Pirates, and Patriots, Free Trade in the Age of Revolution by Tyson Reeder, out uh, earlier this year by uh, uh, Penn Press. Professor Reeder, thank you for being on the show today. 
Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me.